This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 23, July 20, 1982. First of all, I'd like to start with something, again, from John Taylor's Crop News. And by the way, I am grateful to two of you, the Bill Fellersons, for sharing this regularly with me. Taylor has a comment about the weather and food situation and he calls attention to the fact that the un, there is an unusual lingering polar air mass which has enveloped northern Europe and Great Britain this summer. Poland is reported to have gotten more rain in some places than they have received in the past 250 years. Cold, wet weather has prevailed all over northern Europe. Sugar beets could incur extensive damage by late October. Since the winter wheat harvest occurs in late July, many of these European farmers cannot get their farm machinery in the fields and have resorted to calling out the army, schoolchildren, etc. to harvest the wheat by hand. Summarizing world crop conditions this summer, most areas are suffering from either excessively wet weather or prolonged drought. It's either too hot or too cold. Then something else sent in by uh, Frank Gadosh, and some of you remember we had his excellent Do We Obey God or Government in the Chalcedon Report a couple of years ago. Uh, Frank sent in uh, an item from uh, Tom Anderson's straight talk about atomic warfare, nuclear warfare. And Anderson says, many people believe that these two Japanese cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are still uninhabitable, swirling death traps of radiation. In reality, only a day after the blast, the bridges in Hiroshima were open to traffic. Two days later, trains started to run, and nine days later, telephone services were back in working order. Sewage and gas works on the edge of the explosion never went out of action at all. In Nagasaki, some of those who survived completely uninjur uninjured had been inside conventional air raid shelters only a third of a mile from the point of the explosion. Yet the shelters had no blast doors and were in areas where the blast destroyed all buildings. As for deaths from radiation-induced cancer since 1945, 2,793 have died from cancer of one form or another, a figure exactly in line with cancer deaths elsewhere throughout Japan. He goes on to say, as he deals with fiction and fact with regard to nuclear warfare, and I quote, fiction, if a bomb is 50 times as powerful as those that fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then the devastation will be 50 times greater. Fact. Even if a bomb has 50 times the old explosive power, the range of damage cannot be 50 times as, as great, according to well-known physical laws. A bomb 50 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb would cause similar damages over a range less than four times as great. Anderson goes on to deal with the various myths that uh, surround the subject, including the ostensible damage to the children of radiation-exposed parents, and points out that according to the Atomic Energy Research Establishment of Harwell, England, uh, no genetic defect that can assuredly be ascribed to radiation has ever been found in man. Well, enough of that. I'd like to spend just a moment or two with the July-August Washington Monthly. There is an interesting article by Hal Riedel, Trial and Tribulation in a Baltimore Courtroom, The Punishment Fits the Crime for Once. The interesting part of this article is the report he gives very favorably 
on the comments of John Prevost, the uh, prosecuting attorney. And I quote, He sees American criminal procedure as a system of planned disorder with roots in the Federalist Papers. The U.S. Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren created a procedural obstacle course for police and prosecutors. The Warren Court had two ideas about crime. That criminal procedure was routinely manipulated to oppress blacks and other politically unpopular groups, which it was, and that crime was an uncommon occurrence in America, which it was not. Together, these ideas produced a revolution in the pains taken to protect the accused and the convicted. What was meant to mitigate brutality and unfairness has opened the door to a new kind of injustice. The quest for perfect justice has combined with a notion common among public defenders and appeals court judges that society is more to blame for producing the criminal than the criminal is for committing the crime. Not only does an accused enjoy the presumption of innocence, but also the presumption that the entire system of arrest, trial, and punishment is guilty. As John Prevost sees it, a whole lot of rights make one big wrong. We've forgotten that we're not here to satisfy a guy that he's being fairly convicted. As deputy director of a unit that handles great many drug prosecutions, Prevost, a special cross to bear is the exclusionary rule, which forbids the use of evidence that has been quote, unquote, constitu unconstitutionally obtained. In the 20-odd years since the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court applied the exclusionary rule to the states in the case of Mapp versus Ohio, there has grown up a dense thicket of case law as to what is and what is not a constitutional search and seizure. It is a thicket in which a, uh, many a drug entrepreneur caught red-handed with a contraband has successfully hidden behind a police mistake. Courts have indulged such extraordinarily labored interpretations of the exclusionary rule that Priebus is routinely forced into an argument like the following. If the court finds that the flap of the pocketbook was open, there is no Fourth Amendment question, as the defendant has no reasonable expectation of privacy but if the court finds that the flap was closed, the reasonable expectation of privacy is defeated by the fact that the police had probable cause to arrest her, having just been told by an informant that she had 300 quaaludes in her pocketbook. Well, there's much more on this, but it's an excellent article, and it indicates how even the liberals are beginning to change their tune and to recognize how we treat the law as though it were guilty rather than the criminal. The same issue has a very important article entitled The Great Train Robbery, How to Make a Billion from a Bankrupt Railroad by Phil Kiesling. This is about the Penn Central Railroad and Penn Central Corporation. And if the facts are true, and everything seems to indicate they are from other sources, it tells us why freedom is perishing. Those who should have the most stake in freedom, the capitalists of this country, are contemptuous of it and prefer to play the socialist game with themselves as the primary beneficiary. Capitalism simply cannot work if they're not people of character. Now that's why we're drifting into socialism. What freedom requires is faith and character that make for men who can use freedom. What we have today is a bankrupt country morally and increasingly bankrupt financially. As a result, nothing is going to work. Absolutely nothing when you have people of that character. One of the very interesting books published of late was um, Anton 
Antonov of Seyanko, The Time of Stalin, Portrait of a Tyranny, published at 1995 by Harper and Rowe in uh, 1981. This is an interesting book in that the author is an historian in the Soviet Union, virtually blind, legally blind, still there. The manuscript was smuggled out, published in Russian in New York, and then translated. The author is the son of one of the original Bolsheviks. He has a great deal of inside information which makes this book much more interesting than others. He confirms what others have long uh, held, that during the days of the Tsars, Stalin was a double agent. He was both a revolutionary and he was also working for the Tsar's secret police. At the same time, he was also a bank robber and a few other things. He was in it for what he could get out of it, a totally unprincipled man. What the author also points out is that Lenin was fully aware of Stalin's weaknesses and disturbed by them, but did nothing about them. Now, this has come out in other books, and it has been known for at least... 40 years or more, I recall reading about it in my student days. I don't have any evidence for what I'm about to say, but I've always wondered if Lenin, too, did not have such a like background, and Stalin knew it. Because Lenin was very tolerant of Stalin, and there was no mistaking the fact that Lenin knew the background of Stalin. So that kind of tolerance in Lenin was a rarity. He was given to an affirmation of terror and to killing. But if he and Stalin both had a common background of being double agents, it would explain a great deal about his unwillingness to move against a man whom some believe was responsible for Lenin's death. The author, Antonov Osienko, gives us a citation from Tsar Ivan the Terrible in one of his letters to Prince Kurbsky. Ivan the Terrible wrote, and I quote, We are free to have mercy on our slaves, and we are free to put them to death, unquote. Stalin operated on that premise, except that there was no mercy in his dealings. He saw himself, and the author quotes his statement that the people need a tsar, and he was going to provide it. He was a brutal man. He was very much given to the use of terror to keep people in control. Divide and conquer was his methodology. Using Soviet sources which are not accessible to outsiders, Osienko totals up the number of men who died under Stalin. One hundred million people. One hundred million. Now, when you consider how many died under Lenin, who was no piker in the area of mass killings, and how many have died in the gulags since then, you get a frightening total. And yet there are those who believe you can have detente with these butchers, that you can talk sense to them and make them see the light of day by being kind to them, giving them things. There is an insanity in such thinking. 
The premise of it is, of course, the belief that men are naturally good. And if you are good to people, they will respond very quickly. And, of course, it's nonsense. The author quotes an old Avar saying, to get a chicken, he'll sacrifice a sheep. And he says this was true of Stalin. It's a very moving book because it pinpoints the blindness of our society. We have no ability to cope with such things without a biblical faith, without a belief that man is a sinner, that he's not going to be changed by grants of money and the like. Well, now on to something else. All of us read in the papers not too long ago, within the past week, I think it was, that Social Security is not only in serious trouble, but it is expected that within... About a year, by August of 83, Social Security will be bankrupt. Now there are people who are insistent that federally provided Social Security is a necessity. That society requires some kind of aid to the average citizen, which cannot be provided by private sources or by families themselves. Let's look over the scene because I think one of the most urgent things for us to rethink nowadays is the whole idea of security for the elderly as well as for others. But we are becoming a society of elderly people under Eisenhower, when Eisenhower took office, the average age of Americans was 38. Because of the post-war baby boom, under Lyndon Johnson, it fell as low as 19. Now it is again climbing, and with the effect of zero population growth, we are becoming a society of elderly people. This is going to have very devastating effects on Social Security in due time if Social Security survives long enough. However, we cannot grasp the problem without getting some historical background. Feudalism had no problem with Social Security. Under feudalism, the Lord who had the castle, provided protection for the people, and they provided food and other things to him. The life expectancy in the days of feudalism was not too great, although it should be added that the life expectancy under feudalism was probably greater than it was in the modern age because of the development of cities. Cities in the modern world, up until the last years of the last century, and really in many areas up to World War I, were dangerous places. They were, because of poor sanitation, areas of disease and infection. Very few Americans, for example, realize nowadays how common cholera was in America in urban centers. We think of cholera as a disease of the Far East and the teeming slums of Asia. But cholera was a problem in the United States in urban centers. The urban population, moreover, not only was more prone to diseases because of um, poor sanitation, but also epidemics would go through a town or a city much more rapidly than the countryside. Again, the um, city was 
while close to the country, over the generations, less close to good food, nutritious food, than the countryside. This is not to say the countryside was remarkably healthy in those days, but the city was a place of problems. Uh, the nobility had no social service, uh, social uh, security needs in the days of feudalism, and until well into modern times, they were military men. As a result, the life expectancy of the nobility was poorer than that of most serfs. After all, if your job was warfare, and warfare was, in those days, a frequent thing, small-scale warfare, but just as deadly. It meant that the nobleman and the knight had a poor life expectancy for two reasons. First, the battlefield, and second, the battle camp. Because bringing those men together under the poorest kind of conditions, lack of sanitation, lack of proper rest, and so on, there was a greater proneness for epidemics and diseases to sweep through an army camp than was the case back in their home community. So the nobility had no social security problems. It was uh, a question of getting an heir as quickly as possible so that there'd be someone around to take over when you died. This is why the nobility and the royalty married at such very early ages. Very often they were engaged or legally married as young children, almost at birth. When they were old enough to consummate it, they did as quickly as possible, because it was urgently necessary to get another generation in the gap. So the nobility did not have an easy time of it. If you see the castles of Europe and all, remember, the nobility did not sit around listening to musicians strum uh, lutes and lyres and the like. Maybe their womenfolk did as culture developed. But the lord of the castle was off fighting. That was his work. And his life expectancy was very poor. This was true also of kings. In those days, kings led their armies in battle. They did not, uh, from uh, a headquarters far on the rear, direct the forces. Nor did generals uh, do that sort of thing. Even in the War of Independence, uh, our generals were right up there, very commonly, deeply involved in the action. So, the common man, then. What was his social security situation? Well, this varied from area to area. In some areas, there would be two or three generations living together under one roof. The family would provide for the elderly. I have been told of houses in Europe where there was a room that belonged to the elderly parents, when they decided to retire from work, that became their house, uh, their room in the house. And uh, the oldest son took over and ran the place. In fact, I saw a replica of such a house in uh, Holland, Michigan, one such house on the Dutch pattern. However, in some areas, this was not true. For example, in portions of Central Europe, such as Austria, in the modern era, marriages were by state license. Well, you go to the county clerk now to get a state license. But I mean something more. The state said whether or not you could get married. And you had to have property and uh, a business in order to get married. Servants, journeymen, apprentices, uh, farmhands and the like 
could not marry because they did not have the income to provide for a family. That was the thesis. As a matter of fact, that kind of legislation, barring certain classes from marriage, continued in Austria to 1921. Only the collapse of the monarchy and a change of government ended that type of legislation. Well, in those areas, very obviously, there were a number of restraining factors. The uh, lower classes simply could not marry. There was a high illegitimacy rate, of course, but a low birth rate on the whole. This kept the workforce down. Occasionally it got so low that uh, it created problems. Then, for the man with a small amount of property, it also meant that uh, he generally married very slowly. If he were going to inherit the property, let us say the farm or the shop, he very often had to wait to marry until the older folks retired. And this very often meant waiting until he was well along in years, at which time, naturally, his life expectancy plus the number of children he might have was decreased. As a result, in some portions of uh, the Western world, such as Central Europe, notably Austria. There was not much of a problem with regard to Social Security because there were not many elderly people around. Uh, they, uh, the three-generation home, grandparents, parents, and children, could be found, but they were not common. And Social Security was not in such cultures a problem. In our time, it has become a problem precisely because not that life expectancy has been increased dramatically for individuals, but for everybody. Let me explain that a little more. In 1900, children's diseases were killers, so they eliminated a large number of children all over the world. But improved nutrition and diet and better conditions during the delivery of children saved the lives of these children. So these children were able to live. Now, any time you have a large number of children dying in any culture, the life expectancy of the people is dramatically dropped because then you average those who live to be 70 and 80 with those who live to be two weeks or one year old. And so when you go back into uh, a time like 1600, 1650, you'll find in some areas the life expectancy was 20 years, in other areas 30 years. And the reason was that so many died in childhood. A high percentage of the children died. And this became worse in the modern era as congestion produced unsanitary conditions. The cities were killers. But... In our generation, we have seen that kind of thing diminish and become a very minor problem. Not many children die at birth. Too many in terms of what doctors would like to see, but still, not many. This means that you have a larger number of people who are on the scene and who, for like developments at the other end of the spectrum, are going to survive the weaknesses of old age and live longer. 
So the people who defend the idea of Social Security, in a sense, have a point. We have a problem today that's unprecedented. It has not existed in the same proportion in any culture prior to our time. But, of course, they're altogether wrong in assuming that the state is the solution because the state has messed up the whole collection of funds, abused those funds, and the day of reckoning is coming. Now, when a great majority of people who started in Social Security, a generation who started in the late 30s, are now at the point where they are collecting, the system is going bankrupt. So, to say that it has paid off up until now is nonsense, because up until now the system has not been put to the test. It has not had the same numbers collecting and up to the same degree. From now on is the test. The generation of the 30s is and 40s is beginning to collect. And the system is bankrupt. So it has not worked. Well, what very few people are ready to analyze is the fact that the Middle Ages did have a system of social security. Now, granted that the number of people who needed it in those days was not equal to the number who needed it in our time. Still, the principle was sound. Tithing was at the heart of it. Then, many of the monastic foundations dealt with both the poor and the elderly. As a matter of fact, Many a king retired to a monastery. Many a noble lady retired to a convent and lived in high style. They made a large bequest to the establishment for their own care and left enough to that establishment to care for other peoples. As a result, when Henry VIII seized the monastic foundations of England, the result was a social disaster. Many elderly people and countless numbers of poor were now uncared for. Only when the Puritans began to reach out with the same vision were steps taken to alleviate that problem. But then such radical warfare was waged against the Puritans subsequently that their answers were not able to develop to their full uh, potential. Now, the fact is, what we have to recognize is that we need a solution to this problem. The Middle Ages had one. It was not the only answer that has been given, and the un other answers have all been in the same direction. We know, for example, that uh, until fairly recently, the Jewish communities of the Western world have not had problems in this area. It has been a religious duty to care for the poor and to care for the elderly. And the more conservative or orthodox the community, the greater the care exercised. The same has been true of various Christian groups. We do know that one great Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, took a pastorate in the slums and organized a system that cared for the needy in that area, an area with a high percentage of poor and needy people. He made it work. After he was called to teach at a seminary, in a few years, his work there was abandoned. It does take work. It does take a concern, a passion. The Mother Teresas of this world, the Thomas Chalmers, are giving us the answer. 
And it begins with tithing. And the modern world has not been sufficiently concerned to deal with the problem. Except by state action. And this depersonalizes it more and more and we have the incredible situation today of abandoned elderly people in nursing homes. And they're kept alive so that their check can be cashed and their family milked, kept artificially alive. During my pastorate, I called in a great many nursing homes, and I feel they're one of the blights of our civilization. They witness the fact that we are unwilling to cope with the situation. We just want to put it out of sight. Now, I'm going to read a quote, which I think is a remarkable one, coming from uh, a man writing in England in 1848. A man who was bigger than his political thinking because... Charles Kingsley did drift into socialistic ideas. But in spite of that, Kingsley, who was an able thinker, a pastor, a novelist, Westward Ho, was studied in uh, grade school. It was, that is, it was part of our reading in literature classes. Kingsley was sometimes capable of very incisive and remarkable thinking. And this is what he had to say in his letters to uh, Chartists. And I quote, It is much cheaper and pleasanter to be reformed by the devil than by God. For God will only reform society on the condition of our reforming every man his own self while the devil is quite ready to help us mend the laws and the parliament, earth and heaven, without ever starting such an impertinent and personal request as that a man should mend himself. Unquote. Now, that's where it begins. There's an interesting sidelight on that. Very few people realize that when the Fabian Socialist Society first began, originally called the Fabian Society, the idea was to found a group that would work for the reconstruction of society in accordance with the highest moral possibilities. Very interesting point. Then at a meeting on January 4, 1884, when the name Fabian Society was adopted, the suggestion, or maybe it was a motion, quote, that the, for the peaceful regeneration of the race by the cultivation of perfection of individual character, unquote was not accepted. Instead of changing men, they decided they would change politics. And that would be the way to save society. And Shaw commented on that motion, and he said, and I quote, certain members of that circle, modestly feeling that the revolution would have to wait an unreasonably long time if postponed until they personally had attained perfection, set up the banner of socialism militant, unquote. <laughs> well, it is interesting that uh, a little sidelight on uh, social security arrangements, one of the solutions that was possible in the last century was the frontier, the Canadian frontier. And perhaps on another occasion I'll deal with a delightful book which uh, is titled Gentlemen Immigrants from the British Public Schools to the Canadian Frontier by Patrick Dunai. 
and Clinton Elizabeth Miller sent this to me. So perhaps I can do justice to, uh, to it on another occasion. Now I'd like to turn to something in a much lighter vein. One of the things that delights me greatly, and uh, someone has asked that I read one of these, which I read years and years ago on a tape, uh, and to repeat it, are Fred Allen's Letters. Fred Allen was a comedian, in case some of you are too young to remember, of the 30s and 40s, and his letters are a delight. This one uh, is dated August the 25th, 1951, to Jack uh, Norworth. Dear Jack, your note and the cuspidor Mike brochure arrived today. I hope that before you go into production on a large scale, you will have some research done to enable you to check on the chewing tobacco market today. Some years ago, when I worked for the Chevrolet people, I saw a set of statistics on tobacco chewing that were frightening. These figures proved that tobacco chewing had fallen off 102.9%. This meant that not only that every man, woman, and child in the country had stopped chewing, but that 2.9% people who were thinking of taking up the habit had changed their minds. According to the Chevrolet report, tobacco had fallen off because of the automobile and the paved road. When a man drove a horse, his speed was low enough to permit him to chew tobacco and spit a low, wet curve in the breeze that would clear the horse and the buggy. The increased speed of the automobile introduced a hazard. When the driver leaned out of the car and spit, <laughs> the occupant of, in the back seat suddenly acquired a tan bib. In many cases, if the speed was high enough, the driver would receive the brown charge right uh, back in the kisser. The paved road uh, presented another problem. When a tobacco chewer walked with a lady <laughs> along a, a dusty road, he could turn his head and avoid suddenly. There would be a tiny puff of dust and the road was covered before the lady could sense what had happened. I had to quit chewing, but not because of the above reasons. I have high blood pressure, which for some reason known to the medical fraternity does not go with tobacco chewing. Hope you're well. The next time you get out to the coast, I will make another attempt to catch up with you. Meanwhile, watch your step with this cus uh, cuspidor Mike proposition. You may have to import wet wax to start chewing to take your stock off your hands. Regards, Fred Allen. Of course, his classic one goes back to June 18, 1932. I don't know whether I can get through this one. This one really breaks me up. But uh, he wrote it to the State of New York Insurance Department, Office of the Special Deputy Superintendent. Liquidation of the Southern Surety Company of New York, 111 John Street, New York City. Dear Sir, the soullessness of corporations is something to stun you. I am myself a victim, and instead of being a man of wealth and honor to the community, I am now a relic of humanity, just from the hands of a surgeon who made an honest effort to restore me to the form in which I grew while reaching manhood's estate. Let me review my case, sir. I carry an accident insurance policy in the blank indemnity company, by terms of which the company agreed to pay me $25 a week during such time as I was prevented from working because of an accident. I went around last Sunday morning to a new house that is being built for me. I climb the stairs, or rather the ladder that is there where the stairs will be when the house is finished, and on the top floor I found a pile of bricks which were not needed there. Feeling industrious, I decided to remove the bricks. In the elevator shaft there was a rope and a pulley, and on one end of the rope was a barrel. I pulled the barrel up to the top after walking down the ladder, and then fastened the rope firmly at the bottom of the shaft. 
Then I climbed the ladder again and filled the barrel with bricks. Down the ladder I climbed again, five floors, mind you, and untied the rope to let the barrel down. The barrel was heavier than I was, and before I had time to study over the proposition, I was going up the shaft with my speed increasing at every floor. I thought of letting go of the rope, but just before I had decided to do so, I was so high that it seemed more dangerous to let go than to hold on, so I held on. Halfway up the elevator shaft, I met the barrel of bricks coming down. The encounter was brief and spirited. I got the worst of it, but continued on my way towards the roof. That is, most of me went down, went on, but much of my epidermis clung to the barrel and returned to the earth. Then I struck the roof. At the same time, the barrel struck the cellar. The shock knocked the breath out of me and the bottom out of the barrel. Then I was heavier than the empty barrel, and I started down while the barrel started up. We went and met the middle of our journey, and the barrel uppercut me, pounded my solar plexus, barked my shins, bruised my body, and skinned my face. When we became untangled, I resumed my downward journey, and the barrel went higher. I was soon at the bottom. I stopped so suddenly that I lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. This released the barrel, which was at the top of the elevator shaft, and it fell five floors down and landed in squarely on top of me. And it landed hard, too. Now here is where the heartlessness of the indemnity com company comes in. I sustained five accidents in two minutes. One on my way up the shaft when I met the barrel of bricks. The second when I met the roof. The third when I was descending and I met the empty barrel. The fourth when I struck the barrel. And the fifth when the barrel struck me. But the insurance man said that it was one accident, not five. And instead of receiving payment for injuries at the rate of five times 25,000, I only get one twenty. Uh, five times $25, I only get one $25 payment. I therefore unclosed my policy and asked that you cancel the same, as I made up my mind that henceforth I am not going to be skinned by either Barrel or and any insurance company. Yours sincerely and regretfully, Fred Allen. Well, there's a lot more like that. This one on a different note is a delight. Sent to Virginia Libby, a friend's daughter who had announced her marriage. Virginia. To put it mildly, Portland and I were a mite gasted in the flabber regions upon the receipt of your wedding announcement. We both rushed to our mirrors to check on the white hairs of the scalp so subtly inserts among the darker strands to caution us that time has passed. News of your wedding can only mean that you have grown up and that we have grown older. If you had only remained an old maid, we would never have thought about the years and we would have remembered you and ourselves as we were when last we met. We plan to take this up with your father and we hope to see you both on September 17th. With best wishes, Fred Allen. Well, perhaps we have time for one more to the columnist Earl Wilson. Dear Earl, sorry I can't write a guest column for you. Column writing is not my meteor. Meteor is French for racket. I could never be a bistro Balzac, a saloon Sandberg, or a diva de Maupassant. An MC on a quiz program once told me that Einstein knows more about space than any columnist. I told him that a columnist fills more space in a week than Einstein can hope to fill in a lifetime. Einstein keeps going for years with one lousy theory to weather a day. You need two columns of facts. And what facts? I could never take your place. With gay abandon, you write of falsies and girdles and elaborate on their contents. 
I blush when I see breast of chicken on a menu. The first time I saw Jane Russell, I wondered how she got her kneecaps up in her sweater. Press agents, date Hedy Lamar, Lana Turner, and Paulette Goddard for you to interview. The last blind date I had, I opened one eye, and it was Broadway Rose. You are welcome at all of the fine eating places. Mr. Billingsley, they say, carries you over the threshold of his stork club nightly. The last time I ate in Lindy's, the tongue in my sandwich gave me the raspberry through a small hole in the top slice of bread. When I complained to Lindy, he put his head in the sandwich and gave me another raspberry through a small hole in the bottom slice of bread. When you walk down Broadway, you meet scores of interesting people. When I walk down Broadway, I meet Jack Benny or some other actor who is out of work. The nights you go into Toot Shore's Oscar Levant between sips of coffee is bellowing epigrams, to wit, I ran myself through an adding machine today and found that I don't amount to much. The nights I go into Toot Shore's, Toots is generally talking to himself in a low voice. I can't even hear what he is saying. The only time I could hear him, Toots was mumbling, Why, a big crumb bum, you're so stupid you think Yellow Jack is Chinese money. When you go to an opening, Noel Coward stops you at intermission and regales you with a story that is currently sweeping London, to wit the one about the young innocent girl whose father told her about the flowers but neglected to tell her about the bees. The girl went to Hollywood and made three bad pictures. The last opening I attended, Life with Father, a guy named Dwight Grissel, who was selling black market tassels, told me a broken-down gag about a new cheese store. It was called Limburger Heaven. How could I ever get enough good jokes together to be Earl for a day? Last night I walked around town, and here's what happened to me. At the health food store on 50th Street, I saw a sign, Hubert Friend has switched to yogurt. At the Copa, Jack I. Egan told me about the latest in Hollywood styles. An undertaker is featuring a suede coffin. At the Automat, Jack Haley told me about the picture star who thought he was a banana. His psychiatrist found the picture star had a split personality. His is the first banana split personality on record. You can see, Earl, the whole thing is futile. I can never be a columnist. I know the wrong people. I hear the wrong things. I go to the wrong places. I will end up like the old man who lived in the cannon for twenty years. He was always hoping to be a big shot, but he never quite made it. Sorry to have to let you down with a guest column. Regards, Fred Allen. Well, there's much more, and it's a delight, but uh, I think that's about enough for this time. I would... Uh, well, I think I have a little time, and I'd like to comment on gentlemen immigrants rather than putting it off. This is an interesting book because it relates to what we're talking about with respect to uh, Social Security. In the English system, the younger sons were just pensioned off and sent elsewhere to make their fortunes somewhere in the colonies. And as Patrick A. Dunay points out the role of the gentleman immigrants was a very interesting one in Canada. They contributed a great deal to Canada. They also created problems there. The gentleman immigrants were sometimes wealthy, other times comparatively poor, but they were all gentlemen. And, as the author says, this referred to a person of rank, to a man of substance, to an individual who held, held a superior position in society. Even so, the definition was not always clear, since gentility might be measured by a great many different criteria. Income, occupation, nativity, religion, accent, manner of dress, political inclination, any one or all of these factors might have a bearing on one's standing as a gentleman. The Victorians, however, rarely went to great lengths to define the term. But 
basically it was one of recognition. You simply knew that a gentleman was a gentleman. He was a graduate of the public schools. And he came from a background of reading. He was educated not for usefulness, but for status, to be a man of culture. And this, of course, was the reason for the failure of the schools. They tended to despise any subject that had a practical relevance to the world around them. And next to the classics, organized sports occupied the most important place in the public school curriculum. This carried over, of course, into Canada, so that the first thing the English did on uh, going to the colonies was to make a race course and then to make a golf course. Now, this was said by Lord Curzon half humorously, but there was a great deal of truth to it. The English immigrants, gentlemen immigrants, were physically fit, energetic, confident, and courageous. They uh, had a sense of duty to their friends, families, neighbors, and communities. But they were not practical in their outlook. Some of them very quickly adapted. They learned that the situation was radically different from anything they had ever known at home. And as a result, they became leaders in uh, Canada and very quickly Canadians. This is an interesting fact. The successful ones were ones who made themselves a part of the new country. They adapted to the way of life and the conditions thereof. They became Canadians. The others remained Englishmen, very intensely so. So much so that one commentator said, and I quote, to be English stood for debt and drink, gentlemanly manners and general inefficiency. To be Canadian stood probably for a balance at the bank, a seat at the Bible class, and a reputation for hard work and the best side of bargains. Unquote. Well, this is a delightful book because it gives us an important aspect of Canadian history, and I feel that in this country we have not sufficiently understood or appreciated Canada. I hope Canada will outgrow its present political problems, and that we do too, outgrow ours. But the potential in Canada has not even been imagined as yet. The book is Gentlemen, Immigrants by Patrick A. Dunai, D-U-N-A-E, published in Vancouver and Toronto by Douglas and McIntyre. The date is 1981, and the price is 1895. We are faced today with a like immigration, a massive one. I should not have said a like immigration, but another immigration of Latins to this country illegally. Very few people appreciate how rapidly these immigrants are being Americanized. In fact, if we were more receptive to them, because it's obvious nothing is going to be done about it, and it's obvious, too, that almost nothing can be done about it. Half the population of Mexico wants out of that country. It's no place to live. The more hostile we are to them, the more they are going to be Mexicans and Chicanos, outsiders. But the thing that has struck me forcibly is that there are many of them, a very large percentage, who are eager to be a part of this country. This is to them the land of opportunity. And I think we need to have missions to these people because they are, for better or worse, a part of this country now. Well, it's been good to talk to you again, and I'm looking forward to our next session. 
I've been holding back something for some time to be able to concentrate on it, and perhaps next time I can do so. Something that to me is very intensely absorbing. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to our next session together.